Using real life data in real time, we had 81 people who tested positive for COVID and 190 who had COVID-like symptoms but ultimately didn't test positive for COVID. So then we were able to compare the respiratory rates of those two groups while they were asleep and develop some algorithms to discriminate between the two and potentially predict which ones were going to get COVID eventually. People who ultimately tested positive for COVID, even two days before they themselves knew they had symptoms, the algorithm was able to find 20% of them. Welcome to Impact, a Sikh University podcast where our experts unpack their latest research in easy to understand language. We discover how these researchers are creating solutions to some of the world's most complex challenges. Subscribe now to Seek University Podcasts so you don't miss an episode and join the conversation on Seek University social media. Nearly half of all adult Australians track their fitness with wearable monitors, but could the same technology help us battle a pandemic? Seek University research using data from wrist-worn monitors has shown how proactive participants managed to get healthier during COVID-19 restrictions, and respiratory measurements from the smart devices were even able to predict COVID-19 infections before the wearer felt any symptoms. I'm Mary Bolling from CQ University's communications team, and I'm really excited to talk to today's guest on the Impact podcast. Professor Greg Roach leads sleep and circadian rhythm research for the Appleston Institute for Behavioural Science at CQ University Adelaide. And Dean Miller is a PhD researcher with Appleton focused on exercise science and how athletes can hack their sleep for better results. And since the COVID-19 outbreak, both of them have been working with data from US fitness tracker company Whoop to better understand health trends during the COVID-19 pandemic. So welcome, Greg and Dean. Thank you, Mary. How are you doing? Thanks, Mary. Great to be here. Thank you. Very excited to hear about this research because these projects sound huge. We're talking about data from tens of thousands of people wearing these devices uh, right around the world. And Greg, your project focused on um, wearers who actually had COVID between March and June this year. So how did you and CQ Uni first get involved in this research? It's uh, a case of being in the right right place at the right time, really. Um, Over the last few years, we've been involved in various uh, companies that produce fitness trackers. And one of the things that we're particularly interested in is how well those fitness trackers are able to estimate the amount and quality of sleep that people have. So most people who uh, wear these watches probably know that there's some kind of algorithm in there that's giving them an idea when they wake up each each morning of how much sleep they've got and um, the quality of that sleep. And then when the uh, pandemic hit, Um, We were talking with one of these companies in particular about some other data that they're tracking and one particular piece of data that they're tracking is respiratory rate. So then the opportunity came about that we were able to use other of those data from the fitness trackers to potentially have a look at can we predict um, the likelihood that people are going to get COVID or not. That's a pretty amazing thing to be able to predict, Greg. And like you said, the project is the first of its kind, but being a respiratory disease, I guess it makes sense that analysing that data could be really valuable to fighting COVID. So how important was it in this project to be acting quickly and to be using real-time data? Yeah, well, what we found through conversations was 
the company was already tracking these data and they were seeing that for some people, uh, they had an elevated respiratory rate during their sleep. So then they um, actually asked people who were using the devices um, if they could nominate the date on which they started having symptoms and then subsequently whether they actually tested positive or negative for COVID if they ended up having a test. So using real-life data in real time and in the initial data set, we had 81 people who tested positive for COVID and 190 who had COVID-like symptoms but ultimately didn't test positive for COVID. So then we were able to compare the respiratory rates of those two groups while they were asleep and develop some algorithms to discriminate between the two and potentially predict which ones were going to get um, COVID eventually. So the real-time data was absolutely crucial. And Dean, at the same time, you've been involved in another research project looking beyond the virus and to some of the other health challenges that people face during the pandemic lockdowns, especially, and uh, those physical distancing requirements. What were you hoping to find out? Yeah, so uh, very similar to the, the way in which we obtained the data in the, in the first study. So we just wanted to look at the, uh, the potential changes in health-promoting behaviour that uh, people who not necessarily that had COVID-19 but were under COVID-19 mandates, so physical distancing restrictions. Uh, we wanted to see uh, the changes in sleep, the changes in exercise behaviour, and then subsequently also to see if there was an effect on um, some cardiovascular health measures that the device can um, obtain and, and see the impact of, of those mandates over in the States on these individuals. Okay, so speaking from Melbourne here and uh, six months into lockdown now, I think I can say quite confidently that personally I haven't gotten any healthier in the lockdown. But, Dean, what did the data tell you about uh, the participants who were wearing these monitors? Yes, so we had about 40,000 US-based participants uh, who were all subscribed to the Whoop platform. So what we saw was in this particular cohort, uh, people de dedicated more time to sleep, so uh, obtained around 12 minutes more sleep each night. Um, they fell asleep earlier, uh, around 24 minutes earlier. They woke up earlier um, and obtained more sleep overall, so about 12 minutes more sleep during the COVID-19 uh, mandate period when compared to, to previous dates. So we took a 70-day period pre COVID-19 uh, mandates in the States and then a 70-day period during. So we saw uh, generally an increase in sleep, a, a particular measure that's called social jet lag, um, which is the difference between um, bedtime during the week and bedtime during weekends. As you would imagine in, in normal society, there are quite, dip, uh, you can expect differences between the weekday uh, sleep times and weekend sleep times, but with um, with the mandates restricting um, social gatherings and um, and commitments uh, on weekdays and weekends, um, we actually saw reduced social jet lag. So that that difference that we usually see between the weekday um, sleep behaviour and weekend sleep behaviour, so the timing that people went to sleep actually reduced um, by 11.4 minutes, which adds the consistency of sleep timing for, for those individuals. Um, what was really interesting, though, um, in terms of age group. So we looked at uh, 18 and 19 year olds and they significantly delayed their sleep offset time. Um, so the time that they woke up in the morning, as you can imagine, these individuals probably um, school at school age or, or at least at university age. So 
decrease commitments for, for school in the morning or, or sporting commitments um, actually allow them to sleep in in the morning, which reflects actually their, their biological rhythms. Okay, so I can imagine that getting more sleep is always a good thing and possibly easier to do when there's absolutely nothing else to do or a lot less to do at least. What about um, the fitness side of things? I guess these things are, you know, fitness trackers um, as well as biorhythm trackers. Was there any change in the activity people were doing? Yeah, so the main difference we saw in this cohort of individuals, um, there was a slight increase in the amount of exercise, um, but not significant. But the main change we saw was the intensity of the exercise. People were exercising more intensely, spending more time in those higher heart rate zones. Um, Now, whether that's because um, gyms were closed and restricted and people were reverting to to more running-based or cycling-based activities that didn't really require the equipment that you would usually use in a gym and there was a spike in in running and, and cycling getting their heart rate up as high as possible. That's actually one of the really cool things that I find about the fitness trackers. These algorithms are so smart. The people aren't actually logging that they went running or that they uh, rode a bike or that they were doing a weight session or a fitness class. The trackers are actually running algorithms over the kinds of movements that they're doing and they can make a very good guess at whether someone is riding a bike or running or lifting weights. So it kind of shows the power of big data and being able to track people over several days. You can get a very good understanding of the way they're living their life and they're not really putting any information into the um, tracker at all other than just having it on their wrist and enabling the algorithms to do what they do. And these fitness trackers have really advanced over the last 10 to 20 years. Previously in sleep research, when we used kind of a basic version of fitness tracker to estimate people's sleep in field studies where we can't have them in the laboratory wired up with all the technologies that we usually would use for recording sleep. We would just put very basic fitness trackers on people that just recorded each minute how much they were moving. Now, as Dean says, they can record a lot of other information. They can record your heart rate, your breathing rate. Some of them are able to measure skin temperature. Some of them are able to estimate uh, blood oxygen concentration. So using all that information, they can get a very good idea of what's happening with a person. But some years ago when we were just doing it based on activity, just looking at the activity trace of somebody over a week, you can get a very good idea of how they're living their life. Like I can remember talking to train drivers and saying to people, oh, it looks like you mowed the lawn on Sunday. And the guy's like, yeah. And uh, you ride a motorbike to work. He's like, yeah, how do you know that? And it's just there are very, uh, well, there are traces of activity that are very good signatures for various types of activities. Yeah, wow. I could see uh, how that might freak um, freak participants out a bit, <laughs> that you can suddenly understand so much about their lives. But, yeah, clearly in these two research projects, it's um, been pretty crucial to get that understanding. And um, talking about sleep research generally there, Greg, it does seem like across both these studies, sleep has been central to both improving health, but then also to reading the respiratory data. Is that just a coincidence or is there some kind of sleep as a secret weapon here? 
Well, sleep, I, I don't know how secret the weapon is, but <laughs> if it is a secret, we want to tell everybody about it because it's a very powerful weapon. And people have done studies specifically looking at the power of sleep as a protective factor for, in particular, physical health. Uh, the studies haven't really been done yet related to COVID-19 because it's, it's relatively new, but looking at other vaccines and viruses, we know that if you are given a vaccine after a night of total sleep deprivation or after a week where your sleep has been severely restricted, then your antibody response, which is the thing that's going to make you ultimately healthy, then your antibody response is reduced by 50%. So if you have a vaccine after not having... Uh, good sleep for the week prior to that, then the vaccine's only going to be as half as effective. So it's critical to get good sleep before you have a vaccine. Whether that turns out to be true for um, potential COVID vaccines or not, we're not sure, but it probably will be, um, or we could make a very good guess at the moment that it will be. The other side of it is if you're exposed to a virus, then we know at least for the cold virus, again, we don't know this specifically for COVID yet, but at least for a very common virus like cold viruses, if you have less than seven hours of sleep in the week prior, so seven hours sleep a day in the week prior to being exposed to a cold virus, compared to people who get more than eight hours of sleep in the week prior to being exposed to a cold virus, the ones who aren't getting enough sleep are three times more likely to actually develop a cold. So we know from that research that getting good sleep is uh, incredibly protective um, against at least common cold viruses, and it may, in fact, turn out to be for COVID-19 as well. But as I say, we, we don't know that definitively yet. Enjoying this episode? Subscribe to Seek University's podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, rate, review, and share. I guess one problem is people know if they feel tired or not, if they're waking up groggy or not, but they probably don't have a really good handle on exactly how much sleep they're getting. And I guess both of these um, research projects were looking very specifically at the quality of sleep and the amount of sleep. Real-time biodata is obviously a game changer for tracking that. Is this research sort of tapping into the full potential of this data or is it just scratching the surface? I think at this stage we're only really scratching the surface because, as I say, the, the technologies are actually progressing now very quickly uh, and developing algorithms to help us live our lives in, in a healthier fashion. So specifically related to the uh, COVID research that we have done, what we found there was the people didn't actually have to track anything. The fitness tracker itself was uh, looking at their breathing rate during sleep and what we actually found in that paper was even two days before people were experiencing symptoms, the algorithms were able to detect 20% of people who ultimately tested positive for COVID. That actually has big potential implications for public health. Thinking of the uh, COVID virus, if we were able to identify 20% of people two days before they even have symptoms, send them off to get tested, and then they get a positive test um, early, then we're able to either quarantine them or have them self-isolate during a period where they would otherwise be very infectious without even knowing that they're passing on the infection. 
Yeah, and another another powerful aspect of the biodata that you're referring to is the ability to obtain a baseline measurement for each user. Um, a lot of the metrics used in uh, in medicine or, or um, respiratory rate, for example, in a hospital when when you're deemed to have um, a respiratory illness at a certain cutoff point, you go and get tested at that one point, and if you're above it, you meet the threshold. If you're below it, you're under the threshold. But when you have the baseline data from one individual, you can see slight deviations either way that may indicate, for in this instance, an infection or, or, or some sort of change in physiology. That's a really good point. The last few months have definitely shown us that the more we can know and the earlier we can know it is vital for the fight against COVID. And I can imagine for a lot of other health conditions as well. Um, so that's, I guess that's the the positive side for the public health um, uses of biodata. But then what about the flip side? Is there risks involved with the amount of biodata we all make available through our, to our phone companies and to app makers and anyone else who we let monitor our health? That's kind of outside my area of expertise, but I know the way I live my life, I don't really have that many apps on my phone. And one of the reasons is because I want to control the uh, the data about me that is available. But um, I can speak uh, for the research that we do and uh, the way we use the data, obviously we have to pass all of our protocols through a human research ethics committee and what they are essentially uh, judging based on the evidence we give them, the decision that they make about any research project is, is the, is the cost or the risk to the individual, is it worth it based on the potential uh, good for the community or for uh, general health? So all of the projects that we have been involved in have gone through this process because we take it very seriously and the, re and the university takes it very seriously that we don't want to place people at a risk that is too great. Obviously, whenever you're involved in something, you know, getting up, there's a risk involved. So that's how we and the university ensures that the, the way we use the data is going to be used for the public good. Yeah, there's a balance to be struck, obviously. What about you, Dean? Are you an enthusiastic uh, biodata collector for yourself? <laughs> yes, I'm probably on the other end of the spectrum with, <laughs> in comparison to Greg. So outside of the research space, if um, you're using these devices uh, for personal use, um, a lot of them work differently. A lot of them do the same things, but they also do additional things. Um, some devices have microphones. Some of them um, have touch screens. Some of them don't. Some of them are just purely uh, photoplasmography and actigraphy based uh, and just detect your movement and your heart rate. Um, so there's, there's a spectrum to consider in the devices that you use and the, the devices that connect to the wearable as well. Um, so, again, I would say looking at the individual product and what they do, all the privacy policies will be there. But it is important to know where it's going, who's using it, and what actual data is being pulled out of the, out of the device and sent to another device. Because a lot of the, well, all of the wearables would work in conjunction with um, a phone, whether it's an iPhone or an Android phone. Um, so it is important to consider. Um, but yeah, in the research context, there's very stringent um, measures put in place to make sure that we're, we're protecting the privacy of, of any users that might um, choose to participate in the studies. 
Now, I know that this is uh, an audio podcast. I assume there's no video being recorded here, but let me just paint a little word picture for people who are listening. <laughs> Dean is Dean is kind of like a, he's like he, he, it's like maybe semi bionic man, or <laughs> maybe a cyborg of some sort. At any one time, Dean has a minimum of three pieces of technology attached to him. So he he may indeed be one of the world's most studied humans. Mm. Correct. <laughs> well, as long as the, the bio data it's spitting out is all looks healthy, are you getting good sleep, Dean, because of that? Uh, yes. Through testing a lot of the equipment that we get, I think last week I had about four devices on me at once. And it's interesting to look at the, the, the same data, but collected in different ways. But yes, um, I think a, a lot of different um, wearables would have a lot of data on, on myself in particular. <laughs> Well, it's uh, research through lived experience is, is a vital part of the research world. So it's good you're putting your body on the line for science. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, as we've heard, both these projects just sound like um, the findings have been very valuable for, for public health and for the community at large. What's next for these projects and what you've found so far? Well, for the COVID project, we have a paper under review, which we're hoping to be published, uh, well, could be any day now, and, and as far as we're concerned, uh, the sooner the better. But this project essentially represents the start of what we could potentially do using respiratory data um, for uh, identifying people who potentially are going to develop COVID-19. So what we would like to do, in, in the initial paper that we have under review, as I say, we had 81 participants who ultimately tested positive for COVID and we had 191 participants who had COVID-like symptoms but ultimately tested negative. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, the, those data were collected up to June, but now we have hundreds more people who have gone on to the app and identified the date that they first had symptoms and subsequently whether they had a positive or negative uh, test for COVID. So what we're hoping to do is use the data from that bigger data set to further improve the algorithms so they can be even better at identifying those who are potentially going to test positive and also becoming even better at discriminating between those who ultimately do test positive and those who have symptoms but actually test negative and the symptoms are just due to something else. Yeah, to know that there's more data coming through the pipeline is really exciting. You know through uh, this research, Dean, that the people wearing these wearables were getting more sleep, were doing their fitness at slightly higher intensity. Um, did, that, did that have health benefits for them? Did anything change in those readings? So what we saw uh, in terms of the, the cardiac measures of health um, measured by the device was a lowered resting heart rate um, across the whole cohort. So ab about a beat per minute um, lower, um, which indicates a, a stronger heart. So the lower the, the resting heart rate um, indicates higher fitness. Um, so we found that during the pandemic, uh, it did go down about a beat per minute. The second um, variable that we collected um, was heart rate variability. Um, now, heart rate variability is, is a little tricky one to understand sometimes. It's, it's the variability between uh, the beats. Um, so it's not the same of heart rate, same thing as heart rate. So it's the time between each, the interval between each beat. Um, basically, what it indicates is autonomic nervous system function. Um, 
pretty much whether your, your nervous system is primed to perform or whether it's stressed and needs to rest. Um, so a higher heart rate variability indicates better health. It means that your autonomic nervous system is ready to respond to external stimuli and you're, and you're ready to go and, and, you're, and you're healthy. And what we found during that period where people were exercising more intensely and uh, obtaining more sleep is an increase in heart rate variability of about 1.5 milliseconds. So both of those cardiac measures that we looked at um, both trended in the direction for improved health. Wow. So actually good health news out of the pandemic. Yes, correct. For this particular cohort, of course, yes. <laughs> so for the particular findings that we have here, only apply to the cohort, but um, physiologically, if you do those things, you should see those same outcomes. It actually is a fascinating finding because we know that one of the problems with modern workplaces is that because a lot of us work in front of desks and computers and we don't have anywhere near as much physical activity in our jobs as we used to have, and sedentary lifestyle and sedentary workplaces is part of the reason that like incidence of uh, overweight and obesity is increasing and the health-related consequences, particularly type 2 diabetes, are increasing. So this is like a brilliant natural experiment of what happens if you take people out of their sedentary workplaces and put them into a situation where they want to be active, then you can see that potentially there are um, health benefits. So I think one of the take-home messages is that when we're looking at designing healthy workplaces, we should be attempting to design something into the workplace that doesn't make people live such a, a sedentary lifestyle at work. That's a really good point. Yeah, a lot of hope to take from that, that if you do put in the effort, you're going to see those health benefits. Um, but yeah, structuring society to let us put in that effort, I guess, is the next step. Professor Greg Roach and Dean Miller from Appleton Institute for Behavioural Science at Seeker University. It's been great chatting to you today. I can't wait to hear what else will come out of this wearables research and hopefully a healthier society for all of us. Thanks so much for joining us on Impact Podcast today. Thank you, Mary. Our pleasure. Thanks, Mary. To find out more about how CQ University is changing lives through real-world research, check out our website in the description. And remember to subscribe to CQ University podcasts so you don't miss an episode.